Well, good morning to you. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of, of preaching a good chunk of the time. And uh, I'm really excited about uh, launching this series today called Help My Unbelief. Really, we have heard from the people, and this is your sermon series. Um, they all really are. We want to address the things that we feel we should. But we took the opportunity probably a couple months ago now. Many of you would have been a part of this. We gave out little cards and uh, asked you to write down questions uh, or doubts uh, regarding your faith. Um, some people did that online. We got, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred responses, and we really thank you for those. So this series, Help My Unbelief, is really built upon the six most asked questions that you asked. So we didn't just get a pile of questions back and look at them and say, oh, I like that one, oh, we'll do that one, and kind of pick and choose. We actually kind of categorized all these into seeing what the questions you asked most were, and then we were addressing them one at a time for the next six weeks. Um, so I want you to hear that. Here, here's a few reasons for this series as we get started. The first reason is, and I hope you've already begun to sense this, is we're not afraid of questions and doubts around here. To our detriment in the church, maybe in years gone by, just in general, or maybe in hanging out with Christians, perhaps you've got this sense that if you've asked a question from time to time, it's been kind of responded to with like, oh no, you don't believe, right? Or you know, these responses of, of being quieted, or your, your question being answered tritely, or or just that you shouldn't have those kinds of questions. Maybe you've been made to feel that way in the past. Part of the culture around here we want you to sense is that that's, that's really not what we're going for here. We care about your deepest questions and doubts. We actually want to hear them, not just in this series, but in general. Um, we want life groups to be safe places to ask questions you're wrestling with and for those not to be discarded but engaged wisely, engaged compassionately, and so we want you to know that if you're somebody with some real faith questions, you're not alone. You're not the odd man out here. Uh, but many people have in, the situations of, of life have led you at certain times or another to have certain questions maybe you never had before, but now all of a sudden you do because of new circumstances and the things that have happened. For whatever those reasons might be, we want you to know that this is a safe place and that we long to engage these kinds of things well. In fact, it's normal to have questions and doubts. Even John the Baptist and Thomas and others had questions and had doubt. Um, the reason I've, I've entitled this series, Help My Unbelief, is because of a scenario we see take place in Mark chapter 9. I love this passage. Um, a man comes, he wants his son healed by Jesus and is really kind of just hopeful that Jesus can come through for him. And so he asks Jesus to do that, and, and Jesus, I, the man uses the phrase, if you can, Jesus, would you heal? Um, and Jesus says, if I can. And he says, I can. And the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. The reason that that statement is so profound is because of this. This man whose son is going through something very difficult, him and the son, Go to Jesus, look Jesus in the face, and ask if he can do something. He responds that he believes that Jesus can, but he asks Jesus to help his unbelief. This is a man who has faith, but at the same time acknowledges, I lack faith. And all at the same time still asks, would you help me grow in faith? 
I believe, help my unbelief. All three things are being said in that statement. So, my friends, the reason we're calling it help my unbelief is because these are questions that we sincerely have, and my hope and prayer is this, that we can address them with with, with a heart that says, Jesus, help my unbelief as we look towards him. Look, cynicism, it plagues us. Some of us have it. What it does is it begins to harden our hearts and we step far from Jesus and say, give me a good answer, then I'll approach you. And I know situations in our lives have sometimes brought us to that place. My hope and prayer for you is that as we begin to try and engage these questions well in this series, that you would pray, that you would seek Jesus, you would look towards his face and ask the question sincerely as you try to engage it with what we hope is helpful, biblical response. The last thing I want us to to do in this series and the reason for it is, is that I'm hoping that I humbly hope that that God would use me and the other preachers in this series to model something for you, to model humility, to model compassion, to model grace. That as we approach sincere questions from others, I hope that you will sense a way that I'm trying to and others are going to try to model for you of respecting the people we're talking to and their sincere questions and having dialogue that's helpful and hospitable and gracious and kind. We don't want to win an argument with this kind of stuff. We want to help people come to saving faith in Jesus or help brothers and sisters grow where there are sincere questions. And so I I hope that you hear a tone to this that that longs to be um, sincere and kind and brings good reasoned answers, biblical answers to hard questions. All right? So... Here we go. Let's start this series. Question number one. It was asked a lot. And essentially the question was this. How do I know God's will for my life? In fact, in probably half the the number of times that I was asked, included in that was, how do I know it's God's will and not just what I want? It's a great question. Really good question. We're going to spend about half an hour on a really good question. And that's not fair. So I'm going to tell you a couple book recommendations. So if, um, if this whets your appetite but you're longing for more, these are a couple books that I would highly recommend to you, okay? We're going to do this throughout the series. Kevin DeYoung's book called Just Do Something. Kevin DeYoung says, just do something. That might give you a little bit of an impression of how we should approach knowing God's will. There's another great book written by Gary Friesen. Gary Friesen wrote a book called Decision Making and the Will of God. Both of these books have been very influential for me as I've really tried to study well for this series and this sermon. Also at our Welcome Center, right beside it is our uh, desk for our library. Um, We have a shelf in our recommended readings that's that's for this series specifically. And on uh, the desk at the library today regarding this question, there are about six books sitting there that you're welcome to sign out as well. We really want to resource you well as we go about trying to handle these questions well. So here we go. How do I know God's will for my life? If you've got the back of the bulletin handy, you can fill in the blanks if you'd like. It's also going to be on the screen. First, we're going to start with what is the will of God? We're going to approach that question. What is the will of God? Secondly, where do we get it wrong? Where do we get it wrong? And thirdly, how do we get it right? So why don't I pray and and we'll get right into this. Father God, I thank you so much for each person in this room. Each person who's a part of this community. 
of believers, each people, person who's walked through these doors. God, I thank you for them. I thank you that um, each one of us are complex and the situations in our lives are, are, are quite complex. And, and we, don't want to, um, we don't want to belittle that at all. But what we want, Lord, is for everyone to know that they are loved by you. Your word is clear. That you are faithful. And we can walk in confidence in these things. So, Lord, we give ourselves to your word this morning, trusting that you make it clear how we are to walk, how we are to live, how we are to make decisions, and what your will is. So, God, I pray that you'd stretch us and grow us, that you'd comfort us and encourage us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a question that's simple on the one hand, complex on the other. What is the will of God? What is the will of God? I'm going to share it with you in three parts. I want you to know that our emphasis should be primarily be on the first two What is the will of God? Well, firstly, there's the will of decree. God's will of decree is what God has ordained. Okay? We're called to trust that everything that happens is according to God's sovereign decree. Everything that happens is according to God's sovereign decree. Therefore, it's his will. We can see it in Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. But God had ordained them. And if he ordained that they would take place, my friends, they absolutely will take place. That's God's sovereign will of decree. It's his will of decree. We see it in Isaiah 46, verse 9. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I'm God. You're not. Every purpose I've orchestrated will take place. Matthew 10, verse 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God is so in control, and everything happens is according to his will, so much so that he says, that bird's going to fall from the tree now. That fish is going to stop swimming, it's going to die, and flip over on its belly and start to float now. God has every hair on your head, I know it, I know when it's going to turn gray, and I know when it's going to fall out. And it will take place because he knows it, and it's in accordance to his will, it will take place. That's his will of decree. His will of decree will stand. It's unwavering. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, that's everyone who believes, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. No question. God does. That is his will of decree. God knows all things and is sovereignly in control of all things. This is the starting place for this question. God's will of decree is absolute and has been, has been from before the creation of the world and his ways stand. That's God's will of decree. Secondly, we see God's will of desire. So will, God's will of decree is what God has ordained. God's will of desire is what God has commanded. We are called to obedience to what he desires from his children. Now, 
If you put these first two together, we get into some of the complexities that actually will work themselves through this whole series. You're going to hear this a number of times because this is where a lot of our questions lie. We have God's will of decree. We have his divine sovereignty. And then we have his commands and that, that we're called to obey them. Which, 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 which harkens human responsibility, and the two go hand in hand. God orchestrates all and is in sovereignly in control of all things and calls us to be obedient and yet knows what we will do, obedience or disobedience, and yet everything is ordained, and yet he gives us free will, and this, or he gives us freedom for decisions, and the scriptures show us that we're responsible for being wise. And those two things go hand in hand. We see a little bit of that. There's no verse in the Bible that shows more clearly, I don't think, the two of these, God's will of decree and will of desire, then Deuteronomy 29, 29. You hear both. Listen to them. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, his purposes and sovereign will, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law those are the revealed things that we're called to know and obey, the commands, his word. Regarding his will of desire, we see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, Now may the God of peace who brought again, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. God orchestrated that Jesus would save. And as followers of Jesus, he equips us with everything good that we need to do his will. His will is that we do what is pleasing in his sight. This is his will of decree, uh, will of desire, I should say. Matthew 7:21, Jesus puts it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the true believer. The will of God, which is his desire for us, it equals walking in his ways by obeying his commands. That's his will of God for us, that we would be obedient children. That's his will of desire. He makes it clearer. Now, regarding decree, we recognize that God is sovereign in control of all things. And regarding desire, we see that God calls us to obedience to his word. This feels a little bit like the classroom right now, but we have to establish this and then we'll get really practical, okay? Thirdly, after his decree and his desire, is the will of direction. This is the specific will of God for my life. This is the specific will of God for your life. This is where we tend to focus the question about God's will. In fact, the questions that are asked are really a lot of times asked in that way of what does God want me to do in this decision or that decision? How do I know God's will is for me to go here or there, or do this or that? Or so he makes his, in the word, he makes his, um, his decree and his desire really clear. Um, the direction, not so much. And that's where we, we often, when we ask the will of God, what we're really asking is what, he want, what does he want me to do here? What I want you to see is that our emphasis should primarily be on the first two and they'll really inform the third. But we tend to fix, we live day by day with decisions in front of us. We want to be faithful. I totally get that. But the first two will help inform the third. We focus primarily on his will of direction. And interestingly, the Bible is exhaustive in pointing us to God's sovereignty and calling. And calling us to obedience to his commands. And is relatively silent regarding specific directions in our personal lives. Except for the, um, 
the extraordinary exception. Sometimes we want to make the extraordinary exceptions in Scripture normative, that that's the way God always works. But even with the patriarchs, with the prophets, with the apostles, um, they're actually really shocked when God steps in and says something really clear that they're supposed to go and do. They're really surprised by it. Like Peter's praying on the roof, and then all of a sudden he's told that he's supposed to go to a Gentile's house. He's like, say what? No, no, that's got to be wrong. No, 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 I'm telling you to go to a Gentile's house. His name's Cornelius, and you're going to go there. He's like, no, 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 I'm supposed to be here and pray and stay with my Jewish hub. You know, like, you know, he's shocked by it, but we expect that he'll always work that way. I'm going to pray until you tell me where to go. Peter was shocked by it, and he's an apostle, but we think that sometimes he'll do that. I just want us to hear the nuance that that's the exception to the rule in the scriptures. The normative practice is actually to really give ourselves to the first two wills of God that I've outlined. So just really, I can simplify this a little bit more for us because I'm using this decree language. And here's the, here's to simplify this a little bit more. We can, we can focus on God's general will and his specific will. His general will is what he calls every believer to. Right? He calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's for every believer, and that's his will. Right? And all, all, right, all of those things that flow from there. And then there's this, his specific will, which is some things that we ask ourselves personally. Is God, is it his will that I do this or I do that? And I want to help us inform that. Who, who you marry matters. Which job you take matters. And where you live matters. Yet at the same time, the thrust of scripture is on glorifying God in your marriage. Glorifying, job in, glorifying God in whichever job you have. And glorifying God in whichever location you find yourself. The emphasis always seems to be on glorifying God, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's the real thrust. In fact, the Westminster Catechism, if any of you memorize this as little kids, you're going to know the answer. The Westminster Catechism starts with this question, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What's our purpose? If God created us, what did he create us for? What is the chief end of man? You know what the answer is? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we want to figure out this morning how to live in the will of God where we glorify him and we get to enjoy him forever. That's where we're going. My objective is this, is to say God's in control. We've already seen that in his sovereignty. He calls us to pursue Jesus and his mission as our priority in life. And he assures us that he works out all things for the good of those who love him, Romans 8, 28. And because he's sovereign, he can do that. But let's root ourselves in a, in a text of scripture and work from there. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 31. It'll also be on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. It's the start of the New Testament. Here's what it says. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you see it? God knows what we need, and he's a loving heavenly Father who will meet our needs. And... Our part is to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, it's to put God first. He's loving and will take care of us. And what we're to give ourselves to is to putting him first. So how do we get it wrong? Where do we get it wrong? <clears throat> first, we have some misguided expectations about the will of God. 
the verse again says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles? Really a word for non-believers. Seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Sometimes we seek God's specific will of direction because we want to please him. Right? I, th- I hear that come through in these questions. It's from a heart that says, I want to please God. I want to do what his will is. And so I just want to discover that. It's from this sincere heart of longing to follow God's will. But there are some misguided expectations in that sometimes. Sometimes we're timid. We want God to show us which way will make everything work out fine before we move. So we ask, God, what's your will? Because I'm too timid to take a step forward in one way or the other. So there's this timidity that says, ah, God, just tell me the future. Tell me which step to take. come from a good place and it can also come from a handcuffing kind of place another motive for seeking god's specific will of direction could be that we're searching for perfect fulfillment we make ourselves believe that god's best for us hangs in the balance upon every decision and we want perfect fulfillment one of the problems with with, with, um, we have in in having so much luxury at our fingertips and living in such a uh, a prosperous area part of the world time and place is that we actually believe sometimes, again, it's misguided, that we can have heaven on earth. If you want to use the theological term, it's an over-realized eschatology. We think that because we're saved by grace and we're Christians, that everything should go well for us here on the earth. But that's not promised at all. Some things are going to go really poorly. So we want to know God's will because we want perfect fulfillment and believe that perfect fulfillment is what God wants for us. Perfection here, now, for us, everything to go well. And so we, we, we want perfect fulfillment and so that's what we're looking for as we ask what God's will is for us. Or we simply have so many choices, like never before in history, that we find ourselves unable to confidently make any decision about anything. So, so one of the questions that gets asked a lot about the will of God is, who am I supposed to marry? That's one of the primary ones. Who am I supposed to marry? Well, way back when, a lot, most people lived in rural communities. Uh, cities are growing exponentially like never before now. But people, a lot of people, the majority of the earth lived in rural places, a lot of agriculture stuff. So you farmed, and literally, if you're a young guy, there's like four women within a 10-mile radius that are kind of in your age bracket. And it's either one of them or no one. And that was sort of your choice for centuries. Well, now we've got cars. Like, I, if, I, if I meet someone in North Van, I can get to North Van. Like, we can make that happen, right? We're going to have long distance. Like, all of that kind of stuff. Interestingly, if there's nobody in your region that, right, that you can find, you can now go online and you have, now you have a million more possibilities of who you could marry. A million is, is really a lot like limitless, isn't it? In terms of, who do I marry, Lord? What's your will for me in marriage? And we ask that question. And what we're, there's so many choices that it's debilitating. We have choice like never before. So we ask the question sincerely, what's your will for me? Well, we have so many choices. We just don't know. And so we expect that God will pluck the girl that we're supposed to marry. But yet, the, the, interestingly, the emphasis in the scriptures is, once you get married, glorify God in your marriage. 
What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when I met Emily, I thought she was very attractive, and she thought I had a, a, a nose that looked broken but was slightly funny. So, <clears throat> uh, and so, but here's the thing. As we continue to spend more time together, um, we really enjoyed each other. We began to really like each other. Um, we began to love each other. We both loved Jesus. I asked her to marry me. She eventually said yes. And ever since, it's been wonderful. It's been hard. And we're to glorify God in our marriage. That's, I made a covenant relationship with her now before God. And I will glorify God in my marriage. That's the will of God for me in marriage. So we have some misguided expectations sometimes. Ultimately, where we get misguided is about God's will is that we think that God will reveal the future to us. That's what we think God's will is, that he reveal the future to us. And if we knew the future, it would deliver us safety and security and ease and all will go well. So I, I kind of want to break that down if that's, your, if that's uh, sort of what you structured as your, a belief regarding God's will. If, if it's that, it's misguided. This is misguided because it's a sinful desire that would keep us from risk and hardship, because it would keep us from trust in God and his sovereignty and faith in God that his ways are best. It's stepping out of the boat and believing as you take steps, wondering, am I going to sink? Even in the middle of a miracle, Peter starts to have doubts. Mid-miracle, Peter doubts and doesn't have enough faith. And yet Jesus is saying, come to me, come out of the boat, trust me. There's this element of stepping forward into the unknown and saying, I trust you, Jesus. I have faith in you, Jesus. You're in control and I'm not, but I'm walking with you and you're going to guide my steps. So there's some misguided expectations. Secondly, anxiety. I mean, we see it in the text, don't we? Do not be anxious. Your heavenly father knows what you need, that you need them all. Regarding anxiety about clothing and what to wear, what to eat, those things, yet a few verses earlier says, don't be anxious about life, Jesus says. That, that, that opens it up quite a bit more. Don't be anxious. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Regarding anxiety, it's not that troubles don't come. When Jesus says, don't be anxious, He's not saying hardship isn't coming. In fact, as he talks about tomorrow, he says there's troubles waiting for you. Do you hear it in verse 34? Tomorrow has its own troubles, and they're coming, and you'll get there. But you're here now today, present. Trust me. Don't be anxious. You have a loving Heavenly Father who knows you and loves you and will work out all things for your good. We usually just have a different idea of what good means than God. So anxiety reflects a heart of distrust. Look, there's many reasons that we get anxious, and I understand them. <laughs> but at its heart, anxiety reflects a heart of distrust in the goodness and sovereignty of God. That will of decree that says it's all in the Lord's hand and nothing will be thwarted. When we get anxious, we're saying, I don't know, God. I don't know if you do. We are to avoid consuming worry, even over big stuff, and to pursue the kingdom of God with all we've got. Don't be anxious about the things that you're approaching that are even troubles. Pursue the kingdom of God and righteousness, and it'll be added to you. Oswald Chambers really simply, really succinctly says this. Trust God, 
and do the next thing. Don't be anxious. Trust in your loving Heavenly Father. Trust God and do the next thing. Being anxious about God providing or being anxious about making the right decision that's in God's will, as we coin it sometimes, actually leads to looking for little signs in everything, that God has a plan for us that's just out of reach and is unclear, but that we're supposed to discover if we're faithful enough. That kind of approach to the will of God is itself anxiety-inducing. We have his word. We have godly counsel. We're going to get to this. We have prayer. And yet we think that we kind of, sometimes we think the will of God is putting all those to the side and then just getting a sense, a subjective sense in moments. And that if we're faithful enough, we're going to, we're going to get it. But if we weren't faithful enough, he's not going to give it to us. And then we got it wrong. And now we're not in the center of God's will. We're way off somewhere. We start to use language like that. That itself is anxiety inducing, let alone the troubles of life. Can I tell you that that's a burden on your back that you shouldn't be wearing? I want to, the reason I want to preach this is because I want to smash that idea. Maybe I'm not Christian enough because I made a bad decision back here, and it's probably out of God's will. Or this marriage is really hard, so I probably married the wrong person. And now I'm really guilty about that and anxious about that. And on and on and on we go. We worry that the decision we make wasn't the will of God. And now, please, please, don't carry that burden. Trust God. Do the next thing. Worry and anxiety are spiritual issues and they have to be fought with faith. Worry and anxiety are spiritual issues and have to be fought with faith. And how does Jesus tell us to do that? Seek the kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Obey Jesus. And do the next thing. Thirdly, there's guilt where we get it wrong. We get guilty started to touch on it there, anxiety and guilt, right? Anxiety is about what's coming. I don't know if you're going to come through for me. Guilt is, I think I made the wrong decision back there and that wasn't right. Expecting God to point the way for every decision we face is unbiblical and it's guilt-inducing, as I just said. It's a weight I don't think you're supposed to carry. In fact, I read a book about, um, about God's will from a man that has a very different view than I, I come to, that I'm sharing with you, that I see and I believe is biblical. This man landed somewhere else where he uh, loves the Lord sincerely, prayed in every circumstance, and, and should, and we all should. Um, but but it, became, it becomes debilitating, I think. In, in this book, he talks about when he went horse riding, and he had an accident, and he's lived in regret ever since. The author talks about listening to God's voice at every fork in the road, but I think he takes it extreme. And here's an example I want to give you from his book. He talked about a horse riding accident he had had and regretted that. And the regret he lived with after the fact when he asked the Lord, he actually spent time before he went horseback riding, praying, asking the Lord if he should ride. But he lives in guilt to this day because he never prayed and asked the Lord where he wanted him to ride. He reflected on praying over the horse, but feeling like it wasn't working. And he rode anyways. He looked back at that incident with guilt and regret because of never getting some sort of subjective go-ahead or green light from God that all will go well on this horseback ride. Could the riding accident have been avoided if he had discerned God's will better? Is the question that looms in his mind. 
This isn't what God has for you, my friends, when trying to discern the will of God. That you got it wrong because you fell off the horse. That sounds nothing like the scenarios in Scripture where Jonah is swallowed by a whale, Paul is shipwrecked in stone, and Jesus is nailed to a cross. Did they miss God's best for them in those moments? Had they been in the center of God's will, would those things not have happened to them? I sure hope they would have. We needed those things to happen. What I'm trying to say is that because they're suffering doesn't mean it wasn't God's will. And this kind of guilt-inducing regret we feel when something doesn't go well in our lives as if we didn't hear God properly sounds nothing like the freedom from the law Jesus died to give us. In fact, we're putting another law on our backs saying we have to discern in some subjective way the will of God in every step of the way that we're supposed to feel and get right and we live in deep regret and guilt when we feel like we made the wrong decision because we, were, we didn't get the subjective thing clear enough. He came to free us from the law, not to put some new yoke of slavery on our backs. It sounds more like the will of God is, again, safety and security at every fork of the road in our lives when God actually ordains suffering in our lives for our good. Jesus came to set us free from those sorts of things and to lead us into intimacy with him as we pursue relationship with Jesus above all else. So there's where we miss it. Well, thirdly, we've got to get practical. We've got to get helpful here. How do we get it right then? If we're not supposed to lay out a fleece or something like that in every scenario, how do we take steps forward and not get debilitated with any one of the things that I've been talking about already? I want to take an aside here for a moment. I mentioned it before, but just before we move forward, I I do not want you to hear for a moment me um, minimizing God stepping in and intervening clearly from time to time. I don't want you to hear that from me at all. I'm talking about normative, day-to-day approach to life that we are to do. I believe that there are instances where God steps in and makes something apparently clear. In one way, shape, or form, he's done that in somebody's life. I am called to the mission field in this particular country I've never been to before, across the world, boom. And it's the will of God for that to happen. I believe that that happens. I truly do. I have experiences in my life that I believe that was the will of God. He made it apparent, and my job was to be obedient in those moments. So don't hear me not saying that. But I don't want you to feel crippled when you have to make decisions, like you're not in the will of God. Just love Jesus and keep moving forward. And if he's going to surprise you like he did Peter on that roof that one day, he'll surprise you. But don't expect him to draw draw it in the sky for you on every occasion. So, How do we get it right? God's will for our lives, as we have seen from the text, is that we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and that we do that by deciding daily to live for Christ and die to self. We preach the gospel to ourselves daily and give ourselves to live in grateful response wherever he places us. We go about these things we know are his general will. We give ourselves to those things and in giving ourselves to those things, we are free to choose whatever seems best. Kevin DeYoung put it this way, God wants us to stop obsessing over the future and trust that he holds the future. God wants us to stop obsessing about the future and trust the one who holds the future. How do we do that? Well, we give ourselves to Scripture. Romans 12, 1 puts it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the te- by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, how do we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as Jesus was instructing us to do? And how are we transformed, as the Apostle Paul is saying that we would be? Well, it is in saturating ourselves so deeply in God's word that our heads and hearts and hands become transformed to his will, to love what he loves and to reject what he rejects. As we give ourselves to God's word, we come to know those things. We will know what he loves and what he rejects, and that will inform how we live. Secondly, we give ourselves to counsel. This is godly counsel. Proverbs 12:15 puts it this way, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. This is one of many compelling reasons why our faith is not meant to be, to exist in isolation. We're meant to be a community of believers. And and we believe at Central here, we are a community of believers. We're a family of faith and we need each other. We need godly counsel. We need people around us in our life group setting or in women's ministry or men's ministry or youth and having our leaders and having godly mentors and disciplers in our lives for the times when we need godly counsel and say, what do you think? What's wise? And we give ourselves to scripture in that and wise words from others. And thirdly, we give ourselves to prayer. This is how we get it right. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, where the Apostle Paul talks about the will of God. Here's what he says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Constant rejoicing, constant praying, Constant thanksgiving. Constant in prayer. Followers of Jesus give themselves to the word of God, the people of God, and praying to God. I want you to lean on that. What's the will of God? Well, give yourself to the word of God, the people of God, praying to God. He'll guide you. It's a pattern of daily life. We pray that God would give us understanding in his word. We pray for wisdom. We pray about things we know are God's will, that general will of decree and desire. Help me put you first above everything else, God, we pray. Help me be a herald of the gospel, we pray. Help me love my neighbor, we pray, because we know that this is what he desires for our lives. This is how we glorify him. Help me grow in godliness and maturity and the fruit of the spirit and humility. We pray to that end because we know that that's what God desires for our lives. We know it. We know that part. So focus on that part. So, am I supposed to jump out of a plane? (laughs) Is this God's will that I jump out of a plane? Well, um, I already told you that sometimes God's will leads us to places of suffering, so even if it doesn't go well for me, we can't say that it wasn't. So really, I'm covered. And what am I going to lose? Maybe a pair of pants when I soil myself. But other than that, right? Here's Les Talvio from the Cyrus Center called me and asked me to do this. Wonderfully, my vacation conflicted with it last year. Somehow, I'm stuck doing it this year. Called me and asked me, I literally prayed about it for about five seconds and said, well, I love Cyrus Center. It'll raise money for Cyrus Center. It's going to be terrifying for me, but sounds great. I'm going to trust God. that as I take literally a leap of faith, that he works out all things for the good of those who love him. I love Jesus. I love you. I love the ministry of the Cyrus Center for at-risk youth, and I want to help them raise money. So I'm just going to go do it. I don't know. Is it foolish? 
I don't know. But maybe I'll get to see Jesus sooner than the rest of you. Somewhere. <laughs> Emily's wondering about insurance policy. I'm probably going to bump it up a little bit. <clears throat> Let me conclude this way. This is the way of wisdom, my friends. After praying, studying God's word, and seeking godly counsel, we make decisions. We do what seems best. If we study the scriptures, listen to others, and pray continually as a regular pattern of life, we will find that godly wisdom will help us make decisions free from anxiety and full of freedom. Augustine put it this way, Love God and do whatever you please. Love God and do whatever you please. The more full quote, that's a famous quote. Here's, here it is a little more fully, and I think it ties exactly into what I'm trying to say. Love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. It's just a desire to move forward in faith, to walk with Jesus, to take the next step, to walk with him. Everything we give ourselves to, marriage or not, this job or that job, this school or that school, living in this location or that location, wherever we land as we take the next step, biblically, prayerfully, and with wise counsel, we do those things to the glory of God as we give ourselves to them. Giving ourselves to trust God's will of decree, obeying God's will of desire, I think we'll experience contentment, peace, and joy regarding direction. Where God commands, we must obey. Where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose and wisdom to choose wisely. And when we have chosen what is moral and wise, we trust our sovereign God to work all the details together for good. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We glorify him by loving him and loving others. That is the chief commandment. And we enjoy him most when we give ourselves to those things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you truly for each person in this room. God, there is hardship um, for so many of us in so many ways right now. And, And so, Lord, I pray that pray that your word here this morning relieves the burden where we've we've been carrying an unnecessary one and i pray god where perhaps we've focused all of our attention on asking the subjective questions or simply me questions i pray lord you'd help us step back a bit and say lord what do you want me to do with my life ah to glorify you to love you to seek your kingdom and your righteousness, to be an obedient follower of you, Lord. May we give ourselves, spend our efforts there. And Lord, would you graciously walk with us through the details of life. We know you will, for you love us. Guide our path, Lord, by your word. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.